Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, the last in a four-part series marking 95 years of RTHK. Broadcasting House is in Broadcast Drive in Kowloon Tong. The building was opened on April the 25th, 1969, after the radio station previously had occupied sites in Admiralty and Central. Officially opened by then-Governor Sir David Trench, the building was, and still is, four storeys, occupied 54,000 square feet with a canteen for 100 people, rehearsal rooms, a record and tape library, and music studios, which could host a band or medium-sized orchestra. The site in Lung Chiang Road was chosen so that it would become a street of broadcasters, and then Radio Hong Kong followed TVB and Rediffusion Television into the street. These days, there's still commercial radio down the hill, and also the television side of RTHK, along with Broadcasting House. This week on Hong Kong Heritage, we look back at some of the presenters and personalities that have been on the air. There's Aileen Woods, who, with her sister, came to Hong Kong as travelling singers. And we had Lucille gowns and wore Sandow corsets and um, really beautiful clothes. And we were there for several weeks at the Crystal Palace in 1911. There's Ralph Pixton, a former actor in India, who was best known for his programme On the Line. We were before radar, credit cards, split atoms, laser beams and ballpoint pens. Former Deputy Director of Broadcasting Raymond M recalls his friendship with Anita Moy. And Jonathan Douglas on Radio 4, who got to interview all sorts of classical conductors and musicians, both based here and as they travelled through. And I, I heard this voice and this American accent sort of saying, It's open! Then, of course... There's our Uncle Ray. Yes, Teddy Roman. Uh, I, I was amazed at that name, actually. Uh, how did he get robbed? Because his surname is Quan, you see. So let's start with Aileen Woods. On the ground floor of Broadcasting House, there's a photograph and the MBE given in 1958 by Governor Sir Robert Black to veteran presenter Aileen Woods. She had been a resident in Hong Kong since 1919. She was one of two sisters, identical twins, born in Australia, and Aileen and her sister Doris were a singing pair who travelled to Europe giving performances. Well, we left England in 1911, coronation year of uh, King George V and Queen Mary. Our last appearance in England was at the Crystal Palace when my two sisters and I were models, strange as it may seem. It was the first time that um, they ever had uh, a proper stage setting and we had Lucille gowns and wore Sandow corsets and um, really beautiful clothes. And we were there for several weeks at the Crystal Palace in 1911. And then in November, I think it was, or October, we went to the United States. Then, at the outbreak of the First World War, they travelled to Southeast Asia and started to do tours. She never married. The sisters stayed together throughout their lives. And during an interview, Aileen Woods once said she couldn't possibly get married as my sister would have had to come on the honeymoon, she said. Aileen and Doris Woods appeared at the Hong Kong Hotel. Doris and I, you see, in the old days, before talkies, uh, we were very well known for because we used to do all the singing for the silent pictures. For instance, uh, The Flag Lieutenant 
be saying, you know, um, land of hope and glory and uh, smiling through and all those pictures. Yes, we did a lot. And Diane, of course, uh, in Seventh Heaven. We sang that 16 times a day. <laughs> 16 times a day. Aileen Woods joined the staff at Radio Hong Kong as a programme assistant in 1946. Later, she was well known for Down Memory Lane, a programme of popular songs, and she died at the age of 83 here in 1970. During the Japanese military occupation, both sisters were interned at the Stanley Civilian Internment Camp and were remembered by others there for their kindness. Well, of course, I think the most outstanding broadcasts, which I can remember, came over to us from Radio Hong Kong, from the BBC, were undoubtedly the, the broadcast of the Premier when he announced that war had started on September the 3rd, and again that night when the King's message came to us. I think that was the most touching and wonderful, wonderful message. And his first thought seemed to be for the children of the world, because he knew that we faced such a great ordeal. Little did we know that we faced so many, many years of it. That was in 1939. From Aileen to the 1980s, as I muck around with the timeline. Raymond Um, the former head of RTHK's Radio 2 and a former deputy director of broadcasting, would get to know some of the great canto-pop singers of the 1980s before they became famous. In the 80s, that was the golden age for Hong Kong not only for radio, it's for radio, television, concerts, record industry, film. All the big stars came here almost every day and night. But you also had contests and singing contests or song awards. Yeah, I still remember in the early 80s, we were assigned by the then British government to do the district board singing contest. So in 1984, 1984 really, we organized this uh, 18 district board singing contest. I was the chief adjudicator. In the end of the day, it was the now very famous Jackie Cheung who won the contest. <laughs> and did, you, did you vote for him? <laughs> of course. <laughs> it, in the final, we've got only nine singers and I still remember he was the fifth or sixth one to appear. So when he finished singing, I was telling myself, the other three need not sing. Oh, I hope you encouraged them. <laughs> that was the truth. And the next year, we the 18 district become 19 districts. So the next year, champion was Li Hakan. 
another very famous Cantal pop singer, Peckin Lee. I feel really so good about how enjoying that uh, 80s Cantal pop era, which is not the Hong Kong influence, it's the greater China. But uh, also your wife it was a, a key yeah, yeah. Radio 2 personality. Uh, <laughs> my wife, Blanche Tang, was the number one DJ here in uh, RTHK. And she was ho- hosting a very popular program in the 80s. All the top stars came here to be interviewed late night. Anita Mui, Leslie Cheung, Danny Chen... Jackie Chung, Alan Tam, all the big names voluntarily came here to be interviewed. And that show was a big, big success. Everybody listened to that show and did not go to bed before that show ended. At, and and uh, what was your wife's, uh, what was Blanche Tang's? Blanche Tang. What was her show called? In Chinese, it's called. If I really want to literally translate it, accompanying your night through songs. Now, when you and Blanche are in in London at home, what kind of music do you like listening to? I... (laughs) You you got the first uh, important question that I really want to answer. You know, when I went to the BBC for training in the 80s, I was listening only to BBC One, Two, and Capital Radio. This time round, I have been in, in London for three years, on and off, sometimes Capital Radio. No more with BBC. <laughs> Very seldom. And that's all. And why would you say that is? Because I, I, I'm in Uber every day. <laughs> the, the driver is, is my decision maker. <laughs> When you look back, at, when you were saying about the 80s, the Canto pop era, so did you meet Anita Moy and Leslie Jiang? Not only that, we have dinner once a month, even with Danny Chen. All the talents are not with us anymore. We were great, great friends. <laughs> What was Anita Moy like? She is kind of couldn't care less lady. She is so talented. I was her adjudicator in the singing contest back in 1982. I only did three. One is Anita Mui, one is uh, Jackie Chan, one is Hakun Lee. We were great friends. Same like Leslie. He is so talented. So it's kind of an instinct 
that you happen to know these people. They are so great for Hong Kong, but they die so young. All those are great talents in the singing industry for Hong Kong to date. Raymond M. There. Jonathan Douglas was a broadcaster and actor who loved classical music as a child and came to share that love on Radio 4. He was actually contemplating a job in Japan while playing piano here at a hotel, but then ended up working 30 years here in radio. I think I wrote a hand, I actually wrote a handwritten letter. I'm, I think I might have even written it in pencil to, you know, to nobody in particular. It never occurred to me that, that anything would come of it. But I got a, I got a call from uh, this, this fellow called Clive Simpson, who he, he invited me in to have a, a voice test. So what were the programmes that you were working on when you first started there? I think the approach then was, was very different. It was more that you had some guy doing the continuity. People were thinking more in terms of shifts, live shifts. There were fewer recorded programmes and it was actually more modelled more on the kind of traditional BBC World Service kind of style, I would say. But you, so you would do live interviews with people coming in or people staging shows here? Well, interviews were things which Clive, in fact, was doing on his arts magazine programme, which, which he was, he called, I think he called it serendipity. But live interviews on Radio 4 were not very common until I introduced them in particularly my, the, mor the morning programme, Good Morning on 4. In those days, one thing about Radio 4 was that, the, was that the Radio 4 presenters read the news. So one of the things that I had to learn how to do was read the news. And then when they started getting me on the early morning programme, it was very early. I had to be there by sort of 10 to 6 because it, it, everything began at 6. And the first thing I had to do was read a news bulletin at 6 o'clock. It was a 15-minute news bulletin, so you had to have your wits about you. <laughs> So it was called Good Morning on uh, Good Morning on Four in those days. Actually, I, I, in those days, you arrived at uh, before six, read the news bulletin, and then there was a sort of light music program, which you presented in a more appropriate way for light music. And that light music program was for both Radio Three and Radio Four. And then at seven o'clock, there was a news summary which you read. That's when the classical music. I mean, that's when Good Morning on Four started uh, at the seven o'clock. Um, and that. And what sort of program was it? It was it was just you just introduced bits and pieces of classical music. That's all it was, and and they tended to be short pieces, so they could be movements from things which you thought people might like to listen to at that hour in the morning. And it was maybe movements from string quartets or, or overtures, and you had to be a bit chatty and and say interesting and engaging things to make people interested in listening to the music, and that was a kind of skill of course you had to learn how to do but I think at that stage there wasn't even bilingual present presentation and there certainly wasn't you know interviews or kind of pre-prepared features so I carried on doing it and then it, for some reason I changed its name to Morning Call and the Radio 4 people didn't read the news anymore. Radio 4 became well for a start it became more even-handed in terms of westerns, westerners and local Chinese staff let me think. It was probably fairly 50-50 in those days when I, when I arrived. Douglas Gautier, who had just recently become head of Radio 4, was trying to in introduce more Cantonese language presentation and bilingual presentation. <laughs> ¶¶ 
Now tell me about you know some of the because you you did as you say you introduced the idea of live interviews. Yeah. So um, I know there will have been many, but could you highlight some? Uh, yeah. So I, I was doing both the the morning program where I introduced. I would say there were two interviews with arts personalities of some sort every morning. So I did. I, I ended up doing a lot, and it, and also I was doing the arts magazine program, which I which I called Artbeat after a while. So I, I, I did spend a lot of my working life at Radio 4 meeting people and, and, and interviewing them. And I got so accustomed to it that whether it was a young undergraduate or graduate from the APA doing a production here in Hong Kong or whether it was a Yo-Yo Ma or Isaac Stern, it didn't make that much difference to me. I, I didn't get... I got so used to it. I wasn't as starry-eyed when I met these well-famous people as people imagine I would be. But having said that, I, I suppose I cannot help but say that the one of the most uh, memorable interviews, one of the most memorable meetings, was with Isaac Stern, violinist, because the, the whole the whole event went beyond just the interview. It was just a slightly bizarre and a slightly wonderful encounter. I remember he was staying at the, at the Peninsula Hotel. And I arrived at his suite. Obviously, he had the, the biggest, most important room in the hotel. And the door was ajar. And so I knocked on the door and, you know, rang the bell. And I, I heard this voice and this American accent sort of saying, It's open! Which was weird. <laughs> it was Isaac Stern, you know. And he was on the phone or something. And so I just walked in. And he, put, he was on the phone, he put his hand on the receiver and said, and he just invited me to make myself at home at the, at the table, which was all prepared for breakfast. Everything, you know, croissant, goodness knows what, coffee. And, so he was especially waiting for me to have breakfast with him. And, um, and then we had breakfast together and we just chatted. And he was one of the most urbane and interesting and impressive people I've ever met, without any doubt. Jonathan Douglas there. Ralph Pixton is best known for his show On The Line, where people would phone in with questions and he would try to help them out. Sometimes the questions were quite fun and bizarre and Ralph would have a few witty answers. He came here in the 1960s having been an actor in India, though first he was a tea planter. So I answered an advertisement in the Telegraph for trainee managers post in South India with a well-known tea planting company. And I was accepted, and it was absolutely beautiful. I was, in those days, about 23. There was a very dear old friend of mine who was also a manager of a tea estate. His name was Ozzie Horrocks, and he had one of those lovely flying officer kite moustaches. And he had a beautiful bungalow, and we all used to go around there. There was a tremendous amount of boozing, you know, in those days. Ralph Pixton had intended to make a determined effort to go back to London to study drama at the end of his tea plantation contract. But then an opportunity arose when a Shakespeare drama company came to South India under the direction of a couple, Geoffrey and Laura Kendall, the parents of a later well-known British actress, Felicity Kendall. So towards the end of my contract, I wrote to him 
and said, I thought about going back and, uh, you know, what would the chances be of joining him? And uh, I got a telegram back saying, join me in Pune. So I did. Ralph Pixton then travelled steerage to Hong Kong after a couple of years with the theatre company. And I did a couple of programmes for Radio Hong Kong, then I met Ted Thomas uh, between one of his many marriages, so that dates it. And uh, we talked a lot, and he was instrumental in, in getting me um, accepted here at what was then Radio Hong Kong. What happened was my secretary came in and said, there's a rather strange man in reception who wants to see you. Um, about a job as an announcer, and I well, that was strange. Well, I went out there, and there was um, this tall, rather portly man with uh, black, glistening black hair, Vaseline down straight back from his forehead. Oh, he was wearing a cloak. <laughs> that was what really uh, took me aback. The long cloak, and I said, "Do you have any experience in um, in broadcasting?" And he said, "I am an actor." Does he know I'm here? Yes, I told him. That's going to make things a whole lot easier. You needn't be frightened. He won't hurt you. If he comes near me, I'll scream the place down. Does Sybil know I'm here? No, I pretended I had a presentiment. I tried terribly hard to persuade her to leave for Paris. I tried too. It's lucky we didn't both succeed, isn't it? Otherwise, we should probably all have joined up in Rouen or somewhere. In some frowsy little <laughs> hotel. Oh, dear. It would have been much, much worse. I can see us all sailing down in the morning for an early start. Lovely, lovely. As the average age of the open-line participant is mainly made up of those born before 1945, we dedicate this overture to them. The survivors. We were born before television, before penicillin, before polio shots, frozen foods, Xerox, plastic, contact lenses, frisbees and the pill. How much do you know about UFOs in Hong Kong? I'm, you know a, I'm an absolute authority. You are an authority? Yes. Excellent. Referring to condoms and everything, are they biodegradable? Yes, I'm not really into the history of condoms. While walking along the street, people have bumped into me. My recommendation is a suit of armour. Any animal going on television and barking on Radio 3, I gather. Mm -hmm. Did you know that? Well, I mean, we'll take anybody. I never knew Ralph Pixton. He always wore a safari suit, and I met him once as he came down a corridor, and he gave me a smile back in 1998. But he became ill shortly after that, and sadly, I never had the chance to sit down with him. To finish up the programme, here's the finale with a man I was lucky enough to interview on a number of occasions and see downstairs at 9pm for years with his show, All the Way with Ray. And that's, of course, Ray Cadiro, who died in January at the age of 98. He was 70 years on the airwaves, starting out at Rediffusion as a scriptwriter in 1949. He met the Beatles three times in one week and was beloved particularly for his late-night show, keeping taxi drivers and other listeners company. In the early days, it was students who would hide their transistors under the pillow. Here, Ray talks about some of the bands in the 1960s who came on his shows and he also helped 
to get record contracts for. Yes, Teddy Robin. Uh, I, I was amazed at that name, actually. Uh, how did he get Robin? Because his surname is Quan, you see? It's, <laughs> so, so it's Teddy Robin Quan. He was struggling with his uh, he had two, three brothers, Teddy, Raymond, and William, three brothers. Uh, Raymond is the good-looking one and the one that attracted most fans. But Teddy, he's the one, the talented one uh, leading the group. And he has the guitarist Norman Chang, who later became very, very big in the film industry, music industry. So Teddy, uh, Norman was the one who wrote me a letter. And he said, Uncle Ray, he said, um, we have been struggling for quite a while and not getting anywhere. Uh, here's a sample of the tape we, we did at home. See what you think of it, what advice you can give us, and uh, see if you can help. So I listened, I listened to this tape, and it wasn't, wasn't well recorded because it was a home recorder. It was one of those RCA, you know, a portable thing. So I said, look, um, the music sounds okay. Why don't you come into Radio Hong Kong and do a proper recording? And maybe we can take off from there. So they came into the studio and recorded in the studio. And I, I was more, uh, more or less the producer. And when that recording finished, I, it sounded very good. So I took this tape to Diamond Music Company, which later became Polydor, from Polydor to Polygram, and now, now it's universal. Uh, I, I took it to my friend in uh, Diamond, and they listened to it, and I said, yeah, I think we, we, we can uh, put him on a contract. So Teddy Robin and the Playboys signed on. What was the kind of exposure in Hong Kong at that time? I mean, how, was there a lot of radio stations where these records could get played? Were there a lot of live sort of like concert opportunities for these young bands? Well, concert uh, radio stations, there were only two, Radio Hong Kong and commercial radio. Uh, Metro, of course, uh, wasn't around then. Uh, of course, they rely on pop shows. We have afternoon tea dance. That's very funny because every, every pop group has a, a fan club. The fan clubs were very, very popular then. Uh, they started to write letters. In, in those days, there's, there's no computers, there's no email. So everybody has to write letters to request songs. So I, ha I have a bunch and bunch of letters in front of me for each program. And uh, when come to the uh, weekend, Saturday, we, we, we have tea dances. And it's mostly in a place called Bayside, which is no longer around in Nathan Road. That was a very popular site. Of course, they had high ball as well. And uh, the, for each party, each uh, tea, tea dance party, I have about three or four bands and plus singers and all that. So it, it's, it, they only pay three, $3 to get in. The tea dances were very, very popular. One of the other bands uh, that you feature in your six CD collection is the Continentals, and that was a group that sprung out of KG5 or King George V school. I think uh, uh, credit must be given to the Continentals. I think they, they were one of the, the first pop groups to, to, to spring into the public uh, like a surprise uh, package. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was a mixture of talents there, Portuguese, uh, uh, Swedish, English and uh, it was a mixed group, but but they were good. So and uh, Anders Nasser was very young then, and he was a good composer. And both hits that they had, two big hits, was I think of her and uh, uh, I still love you. Both was uh, were composed by Anders Nelson and sung by Anders Nelson. <laughs> Oh, oh, oh. 
Uncle Ray there. What a contribution he made to radio. Veteran broadcaster Peter King has been a very worthy successor in that late night slot, so do have a listen. So that was a bit of nostalgia, a look at some of the personalities who've been on the airwaves here to mark the 95th anniversary of RTHK. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.